0: Good afternoon this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer and a new microphone that I'm still adjusting, so if I sound a bit odd, we'll work that out. You
1: have to be the microphone that makes you sound odd.
0: Are you implying that the things I say make me sound odd?
1: Yeah, I think the things you say are more a manifestation of who you are. Well,
0: they say, Michael, that you know you have to be true to yourself. That's what they say, Gary. I don't think they had me particularly in mind when they said that. But so before we get started properly, I should just make a note that in a classic example of a joke getting entirely away from itself. It appears that I will shortly be starting a Agony Ant column on Gript. It will run only when people send in messages to Gript about it. But I mistakenly said something uh, on it, and Sarah Ryan, the soon-to-be wife of the former Fine Gael councillor, Keith Redmond, the delightful libertarian,
1: basically heckled the editor of Gript into allowing it. I I think it'll be... very good for you you can you can do you can do empathy and sympathy and understanding and give deep sage advice to people on relationships and career i don't know what do people write letters to these days or what, uh, to agony aunts about
0: i don't know but i promise the rest of the editors that i will not tell anyone to kill themselves i think
1: that's important i
0: felt i should just offer the promise up front rather than let the worry fester
1: Yeah, I I, I saw a letter, I don't know if this would be the kind of thing that you'd be dealing with, Gary, which was, I think, in The Independent, where a man wrote in and said, dear, whatever, Mary, I am a straight married man, but recently I've been having sex with men and I rather enjoyed it. What do you think this means? And I have to say, Gary, I read that and I thought, you know what? I think this means you are what's known as a gay man. And I don't think you had to write a letter to The Independent to find that out. But then again, I'm not an expert in these things, Gary. That's why they didn't ask me to be the aga yet.
0: So if people have relationship problems or queries about life that they would like me to answer, please send those to news at gripped.ie where I will will apparently be doing that. Um, I'm not sure how seriously I'm meant to take this, but I've been told I'll likely be doing it. So it's either a reward, a punishment, or just a thing that's happening that no one really wants to happen, but it's going to happen anyway. A lot of life is like that, actually.
1: If you do it well, Gary, they might get you to to do the the astrology thing next and maybe do the stars. What is in store for Capricorn this week? I think you'd be good at it. So there's a couple of things to go through this week. We've obviously got the
0: polls uh, just came out. The Red Sea poll is just after coming out. Uh, I do think, Michael, we should give a shout out. There was a protest on housing, I believe, earlier today. uh, Sorry, earlier Saturday. Uh, and I saw Aidan O'Reardon and I've got to say Michael whatever else you can say about Aidan O'Reardon but you've got to accept that Aidan O'Reardon is an expert at all the ways the Irish planning system stops houses from being built
1: oh yeah i mean if you want someone to really get into the detail of how how, how and why houses are not being built in ireland the one you the man you want at your meeting is Adon O'Reardon and I presume that's why he was there. I can only imagine
0: so. But to start with, I actually wanted to discuss a story that I'm working on that has not um, has not gotten out into grip yet. Uh, I'll probably put it out Monday. So one of the things I've been doing for the last while is I've been looking into the standards around schools in Ireland, just kind of mixed around the place. Through one of our FOIs, we got uh, we turned up a letter from uh, Bishop Finton Moynihan uh, because it's in his diocese, the, the bishop over Limerick. And there is a school down there called St. Vincent's. It's a special needs school. And they recently had an engineering report completed, which basically, the school can no longer have a fire cert. It's, it's, it's not safe. There's a, a threat to the health and safety and life of both staff and pupils. Now, the school hasn't closed yet because the insurance company has agreed to basically overlook that they don't have a fire cert. Because if the insurance went, the school would have to close immediately. There would be no two ways about it.
1: Unusually open-hearted and generous of the insurance company. Irish companies,
0: I think, are actually pretty good at this. I I think in certain other countries, (laughs) this would not happen to a a Swiss insurance company at a Swiss school. Basically, the insurance company has has realised that if they take the insurance away, they will be shutting down a special needs school. So they have decided, it appears basically from a social good standpoint, that they're willing to overlook it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The bishop has written to the minister asking them to help this. And the minister and the department have said that they will help this school. But what they are saying is that the works will be done over summer. So they'll be done over the next two years instead of just being done immediately or done over, you know, one summer. And the question now, Michael, is an insurance company is keeping the school open by willfully ignoring the fact that it's not a safe building. and shouldn't be open. That in itself, as you said, is is pretty unusual. Are they going to wait for two years though? Or is at some point someone in the insurance company going to go, like this school that we insure that has no fire cert, like that's, that's dodgy.
1: You, you think that they may come to a point where they say, you know, we feel like we have done our best here. We have been, you know, socially aware and we've been generous and we've given you a bit of leeway but lads two years to get this done come on i'm sorry but we just can't do it anymore that they may possibly reach the end of their patience i think that would be reasonable well
0: i assume the insurance company because it's an insurance company you say okay we're not going to cut your insurance now so you can remain open long enough to fix this on the assumption that when you say long enough to fix this they're going to try and fix it now as opposed to over the next two years, this will get sorted out.
1: If any sense, Gary, if this is a problem which has suddenly appeared, or is this something that has a bit of a history where the school has been trying to get the department to move on it for some time and has failed? It seems to be.
0: It seems to be that there is kind of a long back and forth, and that there are problems in certain schools where the department has said they're going to build new schools, and so what happens? is that when those schools have issues with the current structure, it can't really be fixed because they get told, well, you're getting a new school in, yeah. you know, as soon as possible. So no, we're not gonna spend a million euro fixing the school as is. So I think the, the immediate effect, by the way, of, of this on St. Vincent's in Limerick is that they're not gonna take in any more students for the 22, 23 school year. So that's gonna cause difficulties for people down there, because there aren't that many special education uh, spaces in Ireland, so to have one of the schools say, "Actually, we, we just can't take any pay, uh, we can't take any more students," because by the way, the building is a bit of a fire trap. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually. I'm not sure if I was a parent uh, and I was told that whether that would be comforting or not, because on one level, your child is not going into a building that um, you know might kill
1: them. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a Hobson's choice. That, well, on one hand, they're not going to get it to go to school, and you're going to have to find some kind of alternative. On the other hand, you don't really want to put them in a school where the absence of fire certificate does suggest that their lives might possibly be at risk.
0: Oh, I, I would say that um, so there's two engineering reports. The reports identify several significant hazards to health and welfare and safety. And <laughs> in the, the bishop's letter to the, uh, to the minister, is not the least of which is the absence of a fire assert and the presence of asbestos in the building.
1: Oh, oh dear, just a, the cherry the cherry or the cake, yeah, asbestos, lovely. So
0: he sent that in January of this year directly to uh, Minister Foley. Um, I suppose it goes without saying, but I should say it, that of all the schools to have, Michael, where there's a potential that there are some... Uh, issues with fire safety yes a special needs school is probably the worst possible option to have that in given the likelihood that some of the students may struggle to get out of the school in you know an efficient and orderly fashion michael just doesn't seem like the sort of scenario where you want something like this to happen
1: no we have A long and noble tradition of taking a rather blasé attitude to fire safety in schools. I know it's a very long time ago now, but I spent the last two years of my education in secondary school in very elderly prefabs. The one that I spent most of my time in, there was a fire door, Gary. However, the fire door was nailed shut. And when this was brought to the attention of one of the teachers, he assured us that it was quite all right, boys. The door had been nailed shut in order to keep the fire in, and that was it. it Was it had been agreed that that was the best place to keep the fire? We felt that that was a problem insofar as the fire was being kept in the same space as where we were, and that was something of a concern to us. So it's gratifying to know that we the old traditions haven't died out. And your understanding is that the department doesn't isn't showing what you would regard you. Would have considered like the requisite sense of urgency to remediate the problem
0: well i i sent a list of questions directly to the minister now the minister didn't get back to me the department's press office got back to me uh which is kind of interesting as i'd asked the minister did she have any comment to make on the situation um, was she concerned about a couple of things including the impact that this would have on the provision of education in Limerick for, for children with disabilities and it would have been nice to see what she thought about that but anyway the department the major point of the department was that they have been granted approval for the provision of a new 26 classroom special school as they say under the uh, major devolved capital program and they've been granted money under the emergency work scheme and they're doing that. But it's exactly the situation, when I read the Bishop's letter, it's exactly the situation I thought they would be in, where they have been told they will get this new shiny school at some point in the future, which means that now things are kind of just going to crap. And the department's response to most complaints is gonna be, well, we're building you this school, you know, at some time in the future, Michael. The school, I've generally found in situations like this, the school is very rarely being built, the school is always going to be built
1: an aspiration, maybe even a commitment, but it's not something which is anywhere yet near concrete. I suppose Gary, to be fair to them it's, it's 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 a it's a hard situation the The reality is this shouldn't have been allowed to get surely to this point in the first place. there should have been sufficient ongoing upkeep and care and investment for the department in the structure of the school that you don't get to this kind of juncture where you're you're faced with either a large scale investment to remediate the problem which you're unwilling to do because you're we're going to be doing this lovely big shiny thing, and we won't need to do it then, and we don't want to spend money otherwise because we're kind of putting good money after bad in a sense, but really it shouldn't just never have got to this point. The school was originally intended for
0: seventy to seventy five pupils, which might sound like a relatively small school but you could be dealing with students who have uh, severe educational needs that you wouldn't find in a normal school so there could be quite a lot of work involved with each of those students not all of them but some of them so a lot of these schools are 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 relatively small they say they're now they now have about 112 uh, students quite a lot higher than they should have they're saying that they were told they would have a new school built for them But the minister, uh, Jan O'Sullivan, it would have been at the time, in 2015, approved the building of a new school. They said that a property developer entered into an agreement with the school and then uh, they transferred that property to the department so it could be built on. No design team has yet been appointed to the project. That was seven years ago.
1: So the scepticism that they have about the timescale in which this actually will come about is understandable.
0: So, I mean, we have a situation here where for seven years, this school has been waiting for improvement. It is a situation, I think, where politicians of any position, left, right, libertarian statist, would say there is a legitimate interest in the state ensuring that special needs children are appropriately cared for and educated. And yet yeah, for seven years, nothing has happened And now the the school appears to be a legitimate fire threat. And Michael, I'm just going to put it out there. I don't believe a civilised country should send children, any children, to school in an overcrowded building that might burn down. Some people might say, Michael, that I
1: have a bleeding heart. A lot of people do. They say that a lot.
0: Commonly, I am known for my surplus of empathy. But I just don't feel a load of special ed children burning to death should be the end point of a legitimate policy i just don't think it's right
1: well you know i think that you might on this particular one gary you may actually be carrying the room with you it may that rare occasion when most people think that you know on this one gary actually is right oh you know what the really
0: fun part here is michael
1: now this is the the, like the real kick in the balls
0: so the department has given the school money for remedial works this is what the department said in response to me. But when I, uh, when I checked about this, to carry out the remedial works, the school has to be emptied for a period of about six months. So here's the problem. The school cannot find a location where they can set up for six months, because again, it's a special needs school with 110 students. Now, the only option that the school board say they have is to erect temporary structures in the staff car park. The staff car park, the owner of the staff car park for the school, will only give permission for that once the department has commenced the process of constructing the new school, which should have happened seven years ago. So no one can do anything.
1: And now you're starting to give me a sick headache. I can't... Yeah, this is a little... A li- a a little bit Kafka here.
0: The department just goes, oh, just take money and fix it up. And the school has to kind of go, but where will we put the children? I was like, oh, we'll set them up in the car park. But then you can't even do the car park because you need to build a new school so you can use the car park.
1: Yeah, I can see there's a, I can see there's a problem there. The old logic
0: problem of your one side of the river with a hen, a bucket and a fox. And how do you get them to the other side? Yeah. Yeah. More seriously, I think there is a, fact that we have now allowed a situation to happen where a school has been waiting for seven years for appropriate premises to be built and is now in a situation where they have such issues that they're legitimately thinking of teaching a hundred special ed students in a car park that would seem to indicate a pretty spectacular failure of
1: policy. Only, only if the owner of the car park gives them the go ahead and he will only give the go ahead if the Building commences
0: even setting that aside to get to a point where you even need to consider the car park How bad are conditions in the school and how bad have we let conditions in the school get because we know there's we know they don't have a fire sir. We know there's asbestos in the building and we know there's several significant other hazards so anyway, I, uh, I will probably write something up on it for Monday If Norma Foley is speaking at anything in the next while, I think we might send Ben down to ask her a couple of questions about it, and whether or not she thinks that special ed students deserve a school not likely to kill them. I mean, Michael, I didn't think it was a a policy disagreement that was likely to happen, but it appears to be happening, so we've got to go and ask her. Yeah, I mean, is this a deliberate policy end? You want to talk about China?
1: Well... I think the I think the people want to talk about China everybody loves talking about China there is um well there's I think it's a very interesting story. it's I, I, I don't know if Gary you might put the link in there to the there's the report from Reuters but it's been widely reported Gary I don't think it's it's been ignored China is continuing to pursue what is called the zero covid policy a couple of things about that um the first thing is I mean just to basically they, a zero COVID policy means that the, the idea that they can. Impose extreme restrictions on movement, carry out large-scale testing, limit severe limitation on personal uh, movement, closing down uh, any kind of social activity, factories. The massive impact on the economy. So it's 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 the kind of lockdown, and we were regarded as having one of the more severe lockdowns in the Western world. But what they're doing in China just is completely different. I mean, we're back in the old days of early COVID. But you remember we were looking at videos, things on YouTube, where the people were being welded into their apartments, where you have uh, these people's uh, movements being tracked constantly, uh, access to all sorts of social activities being constantly monitored. So their idea of a lockdown is pretty severe. And the idea is that ultimately what they can do is by restricting transmission, they can strangle the virus. Uh, but they can they can strangle it of the the in a sense the oxygen of transmission from from person to person, and therefore they can get rid of the virus. Now, I think Gary, it would be correct to say that most countries in the world pretty well have decided that this is not a policy which works. First of all, it does just doesn't work, it doesn't control it. You can't do it. It doesn't seem to just. Produce the the second thing. There is no exit strategy, and the problem for China is, at least as it's being reported widely, is that this particular strategy is very closely associated with Xi, who is the premier. Now, anybody who was watching the uh, ag- the recent uh, party conference, Ch- Ch- the Chinese Communist Party Congress, saw that Xi made certain moves which basically mm-hmm. have made it clear that he's there. For, he's there for the long term now. He's Anybody who might have represented another locus of power within the party, or people who might have been critical of the direction that he was taking, have been removed. Xi is very much the man in China. And this policy, the zero COVID policy, is very closely associated with him. And there is a, there is a sense that this has led, because, first of all, as I said, just generally as a policy, it's a policy doesn't seem to have an exit. And he can't abandon it because it's so closely associated with him personally. Now, Gary, we were talking to you before, you were saying that the projections for when they might exit this phase, we're talking, what, Q2, Q3? Yeah, so I, I suppose the
0: the first point I would make here before, before I touch on that, Michael, is when you say that most countries decided zero COVID wouldn't work, most countries were forced into moving away from zero COVID policies so with China, yes, there, there are projections that some of the big four have put together of when they're likely to move away from the kind of lockdowns we're seeing. And there's two problems, I think, with their projections. There are two things bringing up. we're bringing up. The first is it's very difficult to figure out what's actually happening in China a lot of the time and what certain policies are and why they're there and why they will go. So that's an immediate problem. It's one of the reasons why I'm quite careful when we talk about certain things about China, Michael, apart from you know the genocidal camp thing, which is f- perfectly fair, because it's just difficult to know what's happening and why it's happening. Uh, particularly, I don't speak Mandarin or read Mandarin, so I have to rely on you know, just secondhand sources, translated sources. And the other thing I, I would say here is that with China, what's happening is they're rolling down the lockdowns into different regions as things happen like different cities are being locked down at different times for different lengths. I mean, earlier in the year, it was causing absolute chaos uh, in relation to to transit of goods and we will probably continue to do so. So with those two kind of things in mind, the bullish projections I've seen are that China will be mostly reopen by the end of Q1 of next year. Those are the bullish projections. Those are the, you know, <laughs> this is good for the economy if this happens. Uh, Somewhat more sombre projections I've seen suggest that it will be Q3, beginning of Q4 of next year, before China kind of moves away from zero COVID and the lockdowns. Uh, That would be interesting. I mean, I think this must be... You can't really trust the economic data coming out of China, but this must be playing absolute havoc with their economy, both on what it's doing internally in these cities and regions, but also in the disruption it's having with transit out of China. That's going to have a load of, of, of second and third order consequences.
1: One of the reasons why people, are, some, some analysts are taking a more pessimistic view about when they can exit this is because in, insofar as we can work out for, from the information that we can get out of China, this outbreak seems to be slightly different to others in that big outbreaks are occurring that are both numerous and far flung it's not just in one place that but they're they're starting to happen in different places so you're getting them like for example uh shanghai a city of 25 million people uh is looking at uh, a, a kind of a crippling lockdown which could last two months but you're also seeing it in the southern city of Jiangsu, you're seeing it in the southwest of Jiangxing, and then uh, Reuters are reporting anyway that hundreds of new infections are being reported uh across the country nomura the bank uh, has estimated that more than a fifth of china's gdp is now under lockdown which is a share which is bigger than the whole, bigger than the british economy the total british economy a fifth of chinese china's gdp is now under lockdown now there are a couple of things here that again because of the skepticism that you you refer to that uh, we have about the stats and the figures that are coming out of China, the growth numbers, the inflation numbers, all that. We all, there are large, large amounts of salt have to be taken. But I don't know that I mentioned this before, in the previous podcast, but I, there was, now this may mean nothing, Gary, but it's just one of those little funny. Items, a little funny datum that maybe is a bit of a canary in the coal mine. The Australian red grape harvest uh, was taking place a couple of weeks ago. And there was concern that a large amount of the grapes were going to have to be left in the ground or in the field. Because there was nowhere to put the the wine that would be produced when they pressed the grapes. The reason being that the bottom, Australia is a, has a very large... Uh, trading relationship with China and Australian wine has really gone big time into the Chinese market. Look, Burgundy, ironically, at the same time, Burgundy is still very strong, which is but these are very rare wines, small quantities, are very expensive. Basically, the arse has just fallen out, just fallen out of the of the Chinese market for Australian wine. Now that's interesting because that's indicative of a middle class cutting back on demand of what you might consider to be the extras, the, the the non-essentials. And when that kind of thing happens in demand, you start to wonder what's going on at a wider level within the economy. Now, we know, we think we know anyway, that people, shall we say, who have been sceptical about the nature of the, the Chinese growth in the last few years, that so much of it has been centrally driven and so much of it has been done on the back of Basically, ghost building progr- pro- pro- programs, which are which are fine, they 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 generate numbers in GDP, but whether they actually represent reasonable or rational sources of investment is another thing. You know, these vast uh, empty commercial centres, malls. There, we we see uh, uh, flats, blocks of flats, which rather than being occupied, are now being dynamited because there's nobody in them. And there are widespread concerns that the Chinese have adverted to to the stability of a lot of the of the of the regional Chinese banks. Now, in that context, particularly in the context of the the fifth the the the, 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 po- the problems that may exist within the Chinese financial system, there was a really I to me this was the really interesting thing in the Reuters report, where it said the cabinet said that China would use quote timely cuts in bank cash reserves and other monetary policy tools in order to ensure sufficient liquidity state media said on Wednesday and a hint that the cut in the reserve requirement ratio may come soon. Now Gary that sounds like does not doesn't it sound a bit like they're trying to use a stimulus to shore up demand. Now the problem it seems to me with that is other than the fact that there already may be Liquidity problems within the Chinese banking system across because there are all sorts of not mass, it is believed that there are all sorts of not large amounts of non performing loans on lots of these banks that really seem to be unrecoverable. But also, that the problem with the demand here is as a direct result, at least in part, of government policy and a policy that isn't going to change. Now, as long as you keep a fifth of your your GDP under lockdown, it doesn't really seem to me that it's going to make a whole lot of difference in those areas to demand how much stimulus you put in. But that stimulus is is perhaps going to go to other places and lead to what large scale what the Austrians would call malinvestment. I think this is this this whole picture, shall we say? is not a picture that would make you think that that if you had two quid down the back of the sofa that you wanted to invest long-term in in an economy, that China is the place you'd be looking at. I mean, China is a a really big part of the world economy. And in the context of what's happening at the moment, post-COVID, inflation, problems, inevitable problems in rising interest rates, slowdowns in Europe, slowdowns in the United States, the war in Ukraine, if there was if this was to result in not just in a slowdown in the Chinese economy, but China going into recession and or a financial crash with the banking system in China, it's not going to be good news for the world economy.
0: Now, I suppose to just mention on the wines, part of, of why Australia saw the, um, the collapse in their supply. Have you seen the actual numbers, Michael, of the reduction in uh, Australian wine exports to China? Like 92 percent. Sorry?
1: They fell 92 percent. Ninety two percent, yeah. I saw the I saw the 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 money figures, but ninety two percent. That's savage. I mean that just doesn't happen.
0: No, I mean that that's that that that's an incredible fall. And part of that is COVID nineteen, part of that is transport costs, it's all that sort of thing. Part of it is the tariffs that the Chinese put on Australian wine, Michael, if you remember. I
1: think it was last yes. year they put them on. Yeah. They got into a row.
0: Well, was it
1: something about the Uyghurs, or was it about Chinese influence in Australian politics? I think, there, I think there it was a mess of things. It was a mess of politics. There was elements of the Uyghurs, there were elements of, and but there was a strong suspicion that there was excessive influence in certain parts of the Chinese political, or in the Australian political geography that was being excessively influenced by elements of the Chinese Communist Party. But yeah, they slapped on massive tariffs. But I think, I, 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 I absolutely, all of those fa- factors are part of it. But I think there is also just a collapse of demand there, which is concerning a 92% drop Like
0: What could be going on there as well, Michael, is obviously a drop in demand. But how much of that is sort of a, a nationalist response to the tariffs? because the way the Chinese were reporting on the Australian wine market and why the tariffs were going on, I could see that impacting on indigenous um, demand. But I mean, there were tariffs, I think, of over 200% on certain Australian wines. Like, it, it was, it was savage. But it, yeah, there's video and photos coming out of China now of fires and of protests, and you're getting a whole host of reporting on it. Some saying the Chinese government have it in hand, Some saying they're very worried about could they see mass public opposition to certain measures. And some people saying they've lost control of certain sections of the public. And so forth. It's very difficult to tell what's going on in China. Information out is very limited. There are very few journalists who are full time in China and understand what's happening in the ground as well. And even if they are, China is such a massive country. Like if someone says on the other side of China, there are these issues you're not going to go and check because you'll need days to do it.
1: I think that there's another element about the, the wider discussion of the nature of the Chinese economy that we haven't really had enough discussion about or awareness about in the West. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that there's been this discussion about the, the rise of the Chinese economy over the last 20 or 30 years, which has been this sense that it, it's just this constant ever-rising tide and that China is just becoming stronger, and this inevitable, inexorable rise, where China is just simply going to—it may already be, or is it—is it going to be the largest GDP in the world? I mean, obviously, you're talking about—I mean, per capita, it's nowhere near the United States. But the you know the projections are that it would it would match or overtake the, China, the United States fairly soon if it hasn't already. But one—if you listen to the the real China heads, they make the point. Persistently, consistently, that the story of China is two Chinas. That an awful lot, the vast majority, in fact, of this economic boom is taking place in the south and in the coastal cities. That when you go inland and you go, you're looking at a completely different reality. There still is a, a lot of China, six hundred, eight hundred million people who are still very poor, places where people barely, barely complete primary, primary level education, where you have very low levels of literacy and numeracy, where there are all sorts of social problems, where there are low levels of uh, cultural capital. And they are not quite untouched, but very least, very much less touched than by this great boom that's occurred on that coast, that was south, south uh, eastern? Yeah, it's the south and southeastern coast. So it, it, It's a it's a it's very much a mixed economy and the ability of the Chinese the Communist Party to be able to control these two worlds we I don't know I think we may have overestimated the the, the capacity to manage this. Would you
0: go so far as to say that China is a country at a crossroads.
1: I think China is indeed a country at a crossroads. Many, many moons ago, not that it makes a slight difference to anybody, but I was involved in a debate where I was, everybody was saying, hey, China, 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 China. And I was saying 20 years ago, you know what? China's going to do great things. And it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be wonderful. But if I had to bet my pension out and I was a young person, I was going to be looking 60 years time, I would be putting my money in India. And I still think that the long-term, the long-term Winner of this is going to be the is going to be India. I think that India has all sorts of problems, but I also think it has all sorts of strengths that China doesn't have. Anyway, I would I just think that we should uh, we should we should be worried, but then again, being worried won't affect the Chinese one little bit. So maybe we shouldn't be worried at all. We should just be aware that this is going on, and we should start buying canned goods, lots of canned goods. And pasta and rice. Maybe a lot of rice. Cause on, um,
0: on China, did you see the 26-storey abattoir they built? No. What? It's a 26-storey
1: skyscraper
0: abattoir um, and pig farm.
1: 26-storey pig. It's a pig farm as well. Pig farm and abattoir in one. Yep. It looks like it's a
0: skyscraper building. Jesus. Apparently can slaughter over a million pigs a year. It's a lot
1: of spare ribs. When they go, they go big, Gary.
0: Yeah, but you know when you do something and then a load of disease experts immediately turn up going, now lads, we're not saying you can't do it because you clearly can, but you may want to consider if you really should do it. Yeah, maybe, just maybe. 26 stories tall and has the capacity at one time to have 650,000 pigs in it. And so it's all automated, so there's... There's just apparently tens of thousands of automatic feeding spots.
1: This is not a place a vegan wants to go on holiday. <laughs> it's got to be upsetting.
0: I, I actually I worked out the um, I worked out the size per animal, Michael. This is eight hundred thousand square meters of space in the facility. So it's six hundred and fifty thousand animals at one time. That's one point two three square meters per animal, and that's assuming all of that space is given over to the animals. And but. It doesn't include, you know, the walkways, the um, any facility uh, parts of the building. So that, like, that is the max an animal will have, 1.2 million, or 1.2 metres squared per animal.
1: Pig is a large animal.
0: Pig's a large animal.
1: Many years ago, I don't know, I, I remember talking to a friend of my father's who was a vet and he was involved in quite, he was he used to go to Europe a lot and advise on things. They were talking about abattoirs, which was an area of his expertise. And you were talking about regulations and how necessary or unnecessary were, particularly at the time. If you, as you know, Gary, there was a big. Well, I, I don't know if it's fair to say a push, but it, that's it felt like that to close down a lot of the small abattoirs that butch that attached to to butchers around the country. The irony was that when they closed down just about all of them, they decided actually, do you know what, that was a really bad idea and they then decided to, we should start looking how can we encourage people to have small abattoirs because they discovered that actually tracking farm animals across the country, hither and yon all of the time to bring them to these places wasn't actually a very good idea, both as a from the point of animal husbandry, but also just from the point of disease control. And he said to me, "You know, if you're just slaughtering an animal or two a week, you could do it in the middle of the road with perfect safety." He said, "The thing that generates danger from a health perspective or from a disease perspective is when you're moving into the the larger industrialized scale abattoirs." Now, he was thinking of the larger abattoirs in Ireland, I think, obviously, where you'd be talking about, if, I imagine, a few hundred, possibly. Possibly a thousand animals with me. i can 't imagine that he would have looked at the idea of a, a a facility with hundreds of thousands of animals and thought yeah that, that 's that's, that's a good idea there won 't be any problems there with disease that that 'll be fine
0: I just wonder so if each of these floors has the same amount of animals on it and there are animals on every floor. Each floor will have twenty five thousand pigs
1: i I, on, I are you sure gary, are you sure this is, you're reading this right i mean that this isn't like this like,
0: a an, an annual figure <sighs> so I think The Guardian has covered it. The Times of uh, Hindustan has covered it uh some of the tabloids have covered it. so if their initial reports are wrong, then yes i am wrong i i'm not I'm, not, I'm just saying it, just on the face of it it's just it's it's mind blowing. Does this not sound like exactly the sort of project you would have had in the Soviet Union, when the central government said we need you to do this, and they came back with some ridiculous figure that had been worked out by some bureaucrat who had never seen a pig, and the local party officials just went,
1: "Okay, then." Okay, we'll do that. Also, again, I can see the the Chinese kind of liking the idea that they would have the world's biggest and best pig skyscraper. You know. That's going to be a lot of pig shit as well, by the way. I would not like to be living near that particular facility.
0: If if there's 25,000 pigs per level and you step off the elevator onto a particular level, what does that smell like? And what does that sound like? Like nothing about this seems pleasant. But they're also saying that it's going to be as automated as possible. And my thought there, Michael, is if it's as automated as possible, does that mean basically keeping each pig in a cage? just in a single cage, and not letting it walk anywhere. And then you sort of go, well, it's, it's a fucking skyscraper, so probably. So just a, a wonderful monument to, to misery.
1: Everything about this sounds like a bad idea. Probably get some really cheap pork, though. I like a bit of pork. I do. I like a stir fry. I like a roast pork with crackling. What happens when one of these pigs gets a cold? Well, I think that's what the disease experts are concerned about. Pretty quickly, you have 600,000 pigs with a cold. And is that going to be a problem?
0: Look at what we had to do, Michael, with things like foot and mouse uh, or the like. And now imagine that you one of these floors has 25,000 pigs. So even if you are segregating the pigs by floor, if something breaks out on one floor, do you then have to put down 25,000 pigs? Yeah. How do you dispose? On one hand, it's very, like, I kind of like the audacity of it because the logistical
1: challenges of how do you even dispose of that many corpses? Is it's kind of astounding. I'm I'm still stuck on disposing about that amount that amount of pig shit. Well I'm not disposing, gathering it and you because you'll use it, you'll put it on land. Uh, you'll 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 put it into the paddy fields, presumably onto the cornfields, but Jesus, that's a mm Biometheus? that's a slurry that's a slurry pit you t- biomethod, yeah. That, by God, yeah, there's that's going to You'd imagine that there's going to be some opportunities there for some renewable energy, all right?
0: Anyway, I suppose to close, Michael, we may
1: as well go through the polls because there's actually something interesting in them. For once, I mean, we when I, well, I say for once because they have been remarkably stable and steady for a very long time. Yeah, Sinn Féin goes up, Finafall has for the
0: last while kind of been coming up a bit as well. Finnefall drops and everyone else kind of just stays where they were. I mean, the Social Democrats have been on, I think, 4% in the Red Sea poll for at least the last four months, which is, and Labour have been on 4% for at least, I think, the last three months. But you're going to hear, if you're following the political news, you're going to hear a lot about this Red Sea poll because it presents uh, findings that Finnegale and Finnefall have kind of been hoping for. So, Fine Gael is up 3% and Sinn Féin is down 4%. So Sinn Féin, at their highest, were at 36% the last two months. Or sorry, the last two Red Sea Poles had them at 35%. The one before that was 36%. And they were just inexorably kind of destroying everything else. Now, as to why this is happening, the Business Post offers the idea that one of the things that may happen here is that the amount of reporting on uh, the Dowdle trial, and how should I put this delicately, Michael? The insinuation by certain media outlets that there may be links between the leadership of Sinn Féin and high-level organized crime. Now, from what I've heard on the Dowdle tapes, or, or sorry, in the reporting of of the, of what, the recordings of, of Dowdle talking to, to uh, the monk, it kind of sounds like Dowdle is trying to lead him on and just say things and Hutch is just not really going for it and it's Dowdle saying that Sinn Féin were happy to use Hutch for for money uh, and things of that nature but nothing in it that I heard showed any proven link between Miriam McDonnell and Hutch so the newspapers are being very careful not to say there is a link but some of the media who particularly who would want to give a kicking to Sinn Fein are very much presenting it in that way. And I think they're getting slightly ahead of what's actually being reported in the trial. Some considerably ahead of what's being reported in the trial. You know, I mean stepping away from Mary Lou Macdonald to the idea that Sinn Fein may know people in organised crime, the IRA became very inf- yeah, very involved in organized crime, mostly dealing drugs with various permutations of the IRA. So would it surprise me if there are people in high positions in Sinn Féin who would know quite a lot about the drug trade? It does not say they were involved themselves, but would know through those links who certain people were, and may have a relationship? No, not really. Wouldn't terribly surprise me.
1: I, don't know. I mean, there was a time, there was a time, Gary, if you wanted to get cheap fags, Dundalk was a great place to do so. And I don't think, well, it wasn't a coincidence just to the birth, but do you think that this is? Can I? I don't know. I mean, if you look at the chronology of when the polling took place and when this story started to be, I mean, I was looking, I was reading a uh, say a report for the Belfast Telegraph, which was published, I think, on say was it, the twenty fourth, and today we're on the twenty seventh. I don't know. I'm not sure that the it, the the story is out there at in enough and in time really, oh, at, when you consider when this poll would have been taken, to be really a decent, a, a de, to really represent a reason for why you'd see 4% drop?
0: You're seeing the
1: business post, who own Red Sea now,
0: saying that forensic press coverage takes the wind out of Sinn Féin's sails, and then they start talking about it. To me, it kind of has a bit of a feeling of, you know, an answer looking for a question that... They there are certain people who are very concerned about this, or at least saying they're very concerned with it, because they can use it to say that the things they always said about Sinn Féin are true, and about the the leadership of Sinn Féin, and therefore it must be what people care about. Whereas I'm not so sure, the public, it's sometimes very difficult to tell why polls move, and you assign meaning to it, but you're basically like an oracle going through the guts of a sacrificed bull, and sometimes it's clear and other times shit just happens and you try and make sense of it. And no one likes saying that sometimes stuff just happens. Um, so I, I, maybe there is an element to it. But to be honest, Michael, outside of the media and particular figures in the media, I haven't really heard a lot of people bringing this up. And as I said, I think a lot of people have gotten, shall we say, ahead of what's being said in the trial in a way which it's not untrue for the most part, but generally with When trials are being played out, media are meant to be quite restrained in what they write because you don't want to bias a trial and then leave a situation where the trial collapses. And I don't think that is a, um, that is not a uh, standard which is being adhered to by everyone at the minute. Uh, Also, this this move from Sinn Féin and its hierarchy might have links to, some of it seems very personalised to Mary Lou. Maybe there are links. I don't know, but I don't think evidence has come out that there are existing links, or if there are links, that they're meaningful, or that there was any criminality there. Uh, it's just, I don't know, I kind of get Sinn Féin's point that they, they don't expect to be reported on fairly. So, and I think you it's a problem in situations like this, where there may be a cause for concern. There may be an issue. Although, yeah. you know, as again, I, I haven't seen anything that demonstrates it is absolutely there. But they just run with it. And then you it's very difficult to trust them to fairly represent Sinn Féin. And I say that as someone who's not a particular fan of Sinn Féin. Like, I'm not... I don't agree with their policy platform. I don't care if they lose a couple of percent. But it seems actually relatively unfair to Sinn Féin, and particularly unfair to Mary Lou
1: McDonnell. But do you not think, Gary, there's also possi- another possibility at work here is the simple temptation, if you are a newspaper which is engaged in forensic analysis, Maria, right, that you want to believe that it is you that has done this. There's an element of the natural ego of the media person to believe that the media are moving opinion. You, you, you would like to believe that you're that important. So you see this and you think, aha, we did that. That's us. And even... When the reality is that when I talk to people who are inside the beltway, as the Americans would say, yes, they are talking about this, but outside, I don't know. To me, this feels very much insider baseball. And I'd also say this story, to the extent that there is a story, is still at the beginning. I don't. We this hasn't played out yet. It hasn't really fleshed out. We don't really know what the hell is going on. I I think that it's this. This may have more legs. It may continue to run. But I think it's just too quick for it to have got out. Most people don't read a newspaper every day. That's the first thing. Most people in our... Once upon a time, when I was a kid, everybody, not everybody, most people would take a press or the Independent of the Times and they would read it. And in a weird way, even though there were far, far fewer sources of information than you might think today. In some ways, people were actually more au courant with current affairs or political affairs, because it was part of the culture to read a newspaper. People don't. People are far less engaged in, in politics generally. And I think that for a story like this to start to have any kind of real traction, it takes longer. And you you need to stick with it. And if you're, like, if you're Finnegan or Finnefall and you want to spin this line, if you want to make this connection to Sinn Féin, and or if you're somebody in the media and you similarly have an animus against Sinn Féin, or maybe personally against Mary Lou for whatever reason, you're going to have to stick with this and keep going before most most people, most voters will start to notice. Then the question is, to what extent they actually will care? I, I I don't know about you, Gary, but do you not think that when it comes to kind of historic stuff like this, a lot of voters who are voting for Sinn Fein or are considering voting for Sinn Fein have kind of priced this in. They're aware that there are unsavoury elements in the history. There are individuals and characters that might have been associated with members of party or in the past that maybe they would prefer weren't. But that's priced in. We are now. This is we're moving on now. It's a new reality. It's a new day. It's a new dawn, and, and this is the most important thing. We're so fucking sick and tired of the rest of them that we're willing to give them a go. That aside, I, however, haven't said that. I would say if I was in Sinn Fein, I would be concerned that I dropped four points. I would, I would be wondering what's going on here, and I suspect that it's more to do with other issues. Myself, that they may that they may have to look at a certain kind of policy presentations and issues. Uh, if you're finna fall, now this this particular vote, this particular poll has been, I think, the worst. Has, Generally, for Fianna Fáil, hasn't it? You know, Finigale go up 3 to 24. You're on 15%. Jesus. They go into government,
0: the last election, what, 22%? Then they they come down to about... They come down to 14%. And then they go up to 17%. Looks like, you know, we're clawing our way back. And then next poll is 16. This poll is 15. It's not a good look. Actually, just on the, the Dowdle trial, Michael, there's a fantastic part of the... Um, where Dowdle is talking to to Hutch. And they basically start talking about the guns that the ERU uses and which ones are any good. And it's just a funny conversation. It's also a very weird conversation, because there's a part of it where Dowdle is talking about someone and says, I'll go over and pay him a visit, will I? And it's then that you remember that Dowdle, as well as being a Schinfeld counsellor, did torture that guy. <laughs> yeah, so it was, what was it, 2015. They, um... They grabbed a guy. I think his name was Hurley, and they—I think they pled guilty to false imprisonment and threatening to kill him. Um, but they—they they waterboarded him, and then they threatened to uh, break his fingers and uh, cut them off. Yeah, you
1: know, they waterboarded him with a tea towel. Well, it's innovative. I—I I, I wouldn't. You know what? If I had to waterboard somebody, Gary, I'd have to look up a YouTube video. I would not have a clue.
0: You sort of think of, as you know, a former Sinn Féin councillor. Um, why is he talking to this massive criminal figure and why are they going up to the north to meet the IRA and then you're like oh yes he also tortures people
1: that's not a story generally irrespective of any other elements that there might be to it that just by itself as an association former Sinn Féin councillor it's not what you want it's not you know no press no publicity is bad publicity well you know sometimes it is This this may be just bad publicity
0: Oh, I suppose I should actually mention this because I've been saying the Monk and Hutch as if all listeners will know who he is. Uh, for those who don't know, he is uh, an Irish gangland criminal figure. His name is, is Gerard or Jerry Hutch. His nickname was the monk. So he's been a major gangland figure for uh, quite a while. Uh, Dowdle, or the Guards recorded him and Dowdle together, and it's now being played at his trial because Dowdle has turned state witness. You can't um, trust anyone these days, Michael. You think a man who will waterboard someone for you and then introduce you to the IRA is going to be solid,
1: and then no. Once upon a time, Gary, honour amongst thieves, but no more. I mean, Michael, that's got to be a man who really wants to stay out of prison if you're willing to piss all of those people off together. Yeah, these are not people that really historically show that they have the capacity to forgive and forget. I mean, not
0: just Hutch and his people, but you. I would imagine you're also going to piss off the IRA by publicly stating that you were introducing criminals to them.
1: I would be looking at the possibilities of getting into llama Farming in Chile as a, a new direction in my life, I think would be a good idea, playing a, a one-way ticket. I suppose we should leave it at that, Michael, and let the people out into the sunshine, as you say. Indeed. Out in the sunshine. We will be back on Sunday, all things being equal. All the best.